Hi, and welcome to this installment of our New Books in the Arts and Sciences panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia University's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Ann Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Assistant Professor of Anthropology Nayor Ben Yehoyada's book, The Mediterranean Incarnate, Region Formation Between Sicily and Tunisia Since World War II. First, I'll bring you Nayor's reading of a section of his book. This section is called Coffee, the Net, and Onboard Hierarchy, and it describes uh, my first attempt to be the ship's cook on the first night of the uh, fishing voyage that I joined. After we spent the voyage's first night sailing the 60 nautical miles from Mazzara to the island of Pantelleria, we were prepared to start fishing. Late in the morning, Zunino came into our cabin shouting, Amonin, atravaglia! Or, let's go, let's work! At the sound of the wake-up call, nothing happened. Then, slowly, Haj, who had been sleeping on the bunk below me, woke up, sat up in his bunk, and started to put on his boots. On the other side of the cabin, the two other fishers, the bosun's nephews, whose names I did not yet know, did the same. I jumped out of my bunk and onto the floor, put my boots on, and walked out. Oh, Lucio, the bosun ordered me as I walked into the saletta, or dining room. Buy cafe, or make coffee. Lucio had, had become my name several months earlier, when my landlord decided, quote, to Christian me, to replace my first name with an Italian name as Mazzarezzi have done to many migrants. The name's root, which means light in Italian, was close to the meaning of my name in Hebrew. They tried Luciano first, but concluded that, quote, it sounded too much like a soccer player's name, end quote. The boson was sitting on the edge of his cabin, the one next to the kitchen, which he shared with Zunino, the owner, and was, talking, and was taking his time smoking and putting his clothes and boots on. When Zunino heard the boson's request, he fired back. Niente cafe, or no coffee. We haven't even done anything yet, he said, and you already want coffee? A minute later, after Tsunino had left the saletta and gone upstairs to the bridge, the boson told me again to make coffee. Haj, my uncle, the one who got me on board, who had been following the exchange from his bunk, probably still half asleep, came out at that point and told me, you're a simple mariner, so you follow Abdurrahman's orders, the boson's. He's your capo dipartimento, or head of department. Call me Gianni, the boson continued, switching the Italian to the Arabic. Smiling at the clarification of hierarchy, we had not yet hauled out one net, and it was already becoming clear that food was where the action was. Do you know how to make coffee? Haj asked me. You mean with a mocha? I replied, resentful of the level of ignorance I realized they all expected of me. After all, everybody knew how to use that, I thought to myself. Yes, the mocha. Let me show you, Hajj continued, disregarding my objection. The trick was to fill the tray that held the coffee powder to the maximum and then to add a bit more coffee. That's way you build, you build pressure. Nothing like the pressure in the bar in the, at the K, but it's something, Hajj said. Then there was the sugar issue. Hajj, the owner, and the chief mechanic did not add sugar to their coffee. Hajj said... That's the only true way we drink it. I drink only Arab coffee with sugar, he said, and the chief mechanic is trying to lose weight. It's because it's a finocchio, which literally means a fennel, but 
it, it's a stigmatizing term for uh, gay men. With Haj and Zunino watching me, I waited for the mocha to stop boiling and poured coffee into four little cups. I was at that moment invested in following all the cultural clues I could encounter. I then emptied the rest of the liquid into a stainless steel pitcher, added two tablespoons of sugar, stirred it, and went astern to serve the coffee. The first cup goes to the captain, Hajj declared. While following me through the corridor to the cabin door, he told me to leave the pitcher and all but one paper cup on the working table next to the vericello, or the hydraulic drum, where the net was, and to climb to the, climb to the bridge to serve the captain his coffee. As I was walking up the stairs, I saw that the bridge was abandoned. I then called, Capitan, somewhat festively, imitating the way I'd heard the crew pronouncing it with a final N, almost silent. The captain then appeared from his cabin, a small chamber adjacent to the bridge. He looked at the cup, grabbed it with his left hand, because his right one was holding a cigarette, cleared his throat for a second or so, and turned away. When I came down from the bridge, Hajj was sitting on a shaky stool in the small space between the bathroom and the working table. His head was resting on his arm, which lay on the table, and he was sipping his coffee with his eyes half shut. I handed the plastic coffee cups to every, everyone who was there and went to stand next to Hajj. The captain doesn't speak? I asked him. The less he does, the better, Hajj explained. Serve the coffee and get ready for the net. This section is called The Mediterranean Talks Back. And it's it described um, a cultural event uh, that had to do with Mediterranean and Mediterraneanism and several Mediterraneanists talking to each other in Mazzara del Vallo. In most events that Mediterraneanist projects of, uh, produce, the institutional settings normally cast the participants according to the regionalist visions that these projects promote. Yet speakers don't always stick to their casting orders or read their scripted lines. Such improvisations chart different links between past figures and present persons. As a result, they frame alternative transnational political relations and the obligations they entail. In May 2008, the fisheries consortium, COSVAP, organized its annual conference. The agenda included the signing of new treaties of scientific and economic cooperation between Sicily, Libya, Tunisia, Egypt, and Malta. During the conference, the consortium's managers and their collaborators in Mazzara's city hall, the diocese, and the various Italian ministries applied the adhesive image of, quote, shared Mediterranean history to the town's new attempts at an equal cooperation with North African partners. In the days before the conference, the entire town was recruited to prepare the desired multicultural mirage in the event's concluding evening, what was called the multi-ethnic night of the Euro-Mediterranean dialogue with folkloric tastings and dance, end quote. Children of Tunisian immigrants who had a Maghrebi music group were asked to perform with their Sicilian belly dancers on a street stage next to the Museum of the Dancing Satire. Tunisian women were asked to prepare, quote, Arab delicacies, which they would offer outside their homes at night to the internal, international group of dignitaries who planned to walk in the Kasbah's allies and admire cosmopolitanism alla Mazzareza. One cultural tourism entrepreneur prepared the talk about the 50 years of Mediterranean culture in town. Finally, high school seniors participated in a day-long conference entitled Lessons of the Consortium, Lessons of the Mediterranean, which was supposed to be presided over by the bishop. 
In the conference's celebratory closing session, entitled Encounter and Sharing Among the Peoples of the Mediterranean, the Model of the Mediterranean Consortium, all dignitaries congratulated each other on their shared high Mediterranean spirit. Following the speeches of various foreign and local politicians, the president of the Libyan Fishing uh, Ship Owners Association, Mohamed Lajel, asked, quote, to say some words. He wasn't planned to speak. Lajel had not appeared on the session's speaker roster, nor was he among the group of veteran political Mediterraneanists who used their speeches to congratulate each other on decades-long friendships and collaboration for the greater Mediterranean good. Perhaps as a result, his impromptu speech diverged from the usual script. After thanking his Sicilian hosts, Lagell proposed, quote, some historical considerations about the shared history of our Mediterranean. He described the island's Muslim period and the cultural and scientific contributions of that period to Sicily and Europe. When the Italian interpret interpreter present at the table took the microphone and began translating, Lagell made sure he mentioned all dates and translated all his words. After several rounds of Arabic words and Italian translation, the Libyan owner asked the audience, what did, what did the Arabs bring really to Sicily? This is a question, he said, that each and every one of us ha has to ask himself. These Arabs who came here for 200 years and brought medicine, navigation, arts, etc., etc., can they be defined as vandals or as apostles of civilization? Now, the Arab dignitaries who were sitting in the first two rows listened to the speech in the original Arabic. Nevertheless, they joined their Sicilian hosts in applauding only after the translator had finished translating the Arabic into Italian. The Libyan representative continued to describe the lives of some prominent ancient Arab Muslim men of arts and science and their contributions to Sicilian and European life. At that point, a few Arab dignitaries clapped their hands while the rest waited for the Italian translation before joining the entire room in another round of applause. The Libyan owner cont continued, We have started with the Greek world and lived through the Islamic civilization and have now arrived at the time of brotherhood, the, time, the 21st century, he said. Most of the Arab-speaking dignitaries started applauding somewhat cautiously at this point, and when his part had, uh, and this part had also been translated, the Sicilians in the room applauded as well. Finally, the speaker concluded. At the beginning, of there was the word, he said. And I say, here we have started with the word. In front of this quote from the opening gospel of St. John, and before the translator was able to translate that last bit, those who understood the Arabic applauded loudly. Most of the Italians, who had not understood Lagell's Arabic, remained in the dark for several seconds, while their Arab guests were already congratulating their colleague with continuous applause. Then, after the translation was finished, the entire room applauded together. During the conference's concluding session, I sat with a cultural tourism entrepreneur and Munsef, the Tunisian itinerant vendor. The two of them were apparently pleased both with the speech and with the way in which it unfolded back and forth between Arabic provocations and the audience's reception in Italian. Here was a representative of North African country who imposed his version of the geohistorical imaginary that connected the fleet at hand with the abstract and distant Mediterranean. His Sicily was Arab, not Arab Norman. Moreover, in his closing sentence, 
He both quote, quoted the gospel in front of his Catholic hosts and inverted the scriptures Logogenesis when he projected it onto the present. It was as if he were saying, all that we have heard, said, and signed is still words. This provocation appeared against the backdrop of his vindication of the Arab foundation of Sicilian heritage, which in turn justified his demand that words be made into deeds. His brotherhood, as he called it, like that of the Tunisian foreign minister during the ratification of the Twinig Agreement in Mahadiyya in the 80s, did not describe the relationship, but called for mobilization. That evening, the projection of Mazara's inconvenient past onto the uncertain future, which I had heard many times, received its gradual pragmatic affirmation from the Arab dignitaries who, after each sentence, waited a bit less before they applauded their Libyan colleague. And the more the Arab-speaking Arab guests applauded each time, the more bound they were, were their Sicilian hosts to join them in congratulating the Libyan owner for reminding them, as Mazarezi often did themselves, that they were, quote, too Arab. As we were walking out, the entrepreneur turned to me and said, how good it is that the bishop didn't come today. Now, we'll hear my interview about Noah's book with Constantina Zanu, Assistant Professor of Italian at Columbia. I'm here with Constantina Zanu, Assistant Professor of Italian at Columbia, who spoke at Noah Ben Yahayada's book panel. Constantina, thank you so much for talking with me this evening. Thank you so much. So first, I would love it if you would talk again about and perhaps expand on your experiences while reading the book, especially your description of thinking about the world of fish while in Greece and the world in between lands. Yes, thanks for giving me that opportunity to remember my vacation in the island of Andros, <laughs> which was wonderful. So I was in the house of this friend uh, who is uh, a historian, and we usually talk a lot about our ideas on history and this this kind of stuff. But he um, he he goes swimming a lot, so he he sees a lot of fish. So he thought of buying a book, you know, these albums, which really elementary knowledge about fishes. Mm -hmm. We have big images and like a paragraph under each fish, which describes how the fish lives. And so the friend told me, ah, you should read that because it really changed my way of viewing history in the world. And I was like, what? And it's like, you know, an album with pictures on the, on the shelf. So I started reading it uh, for fun. Mm -hmm. And I was actually fascinated with that. And every day I was reading and we discussed with this friend about the fishes. And what I loved, I mean, I don't know if you know anything about fishes. I mean, I don't know much about fishes apart from eating them. But for example, I discovered one thing I discovered is that I know I don't remember details, but to tell you what species of fishes was what. But for example, I realized that fishes that we regularly eat have, uh, they can arrive to an age of 90 years old. Wow. So like you eat your, um, how do you call it? Tell me a common fish, the big fi common fish that we eat usually. Um, then, uh, and uh, not I didn't because salmon doesn't exist in the Greek in the Greek seas, so forget the name now. Anyway, um, 
that, for example, I realized that the fishes in my plate had lived longer than I had lived, for mm. example. So I realized that these were creatures had had the, had a specific age, and 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 the age works in a different way in many species of fishes, like they as they get older they become bigger hmm. okay so the bigger the, the bigger the fish the oldest it is the older it is okay in certain species not all of the species so actually this made me think about how time works in this world like time and physical and the body mm-hmm. and i started feeling stressed of course <laughs> as i grow up <laughs> i will become bigger and bigger and bigger and it reminded me of an of an um, idea i had as a child that you know i was thinking because you you know as chi- as children we we grow up and uh, we add weight and um, hide and we become really bigger i mean yeah. there is a moment that we live like fishes right? right but then we stop growing up hey imagine that fishes never stop growing up like so so imagine it's it's kind of a phobia word you would become a giant if you if you live forever so this was one of the things another thing is that there is another kind of species of fishes who um if they gain weight they change sex really automatically yes so most of the fishes are hermaphrodite they have both sexes okay which is again something it's the normality for fishes okay so uh so this species is it can change sex and then if it loses weight it can go back so I I am fighting with my weight all the time. So I was just like thinking, oh my god, I'm becoming. I'm beca- Imagine if sexes are very much connected to, to the weight, right? And also the role in the group changes because if you are a male fish, it, your your role in the group changes. Then you have, for example, fishes who live forever and ever alone, the solitary fishes, and those who live in groups. And so, and then you have groups of um, uh, where you have one leader and the leader uh, how was that the leader uh, if the leader dies uh, yes it's just females all are females and the leader is male there is only one male in the group mm-hmm. and if the male dies the the second big fish which is female, automatically transforms into a male and becomes the leader. So, or another thing that made me really think how we take things for granted is that there is this fish which uh, it has its eyes (laughs) on the one side. So, So imagine, like, it's a plate fish, right? And he has his eyes here, and the mouth is below. Huh. So, so the fish doesn't see what he eats. Huh. Okay. Yeah. And then, at a certain time, while he grows up, he becomes he, he turns over, and the one eye, the other eye goes like that, and the mouth goes. So, or you have fishes. Maybe you have seen them. These like orange fishes that have they still always they have 
both eyes this way, this, on this side, mm -hmm. the mouth here. I mean, the rest is normal. It's just two eyes on the same side. Mm -hmm. They don't see behind. And I was thinking, imagine how like, we draw faces from when we're uh, children, right? And we take for granted that the eyes are here, and then the nose is here, and the mouth is here. We never think that, like, you know, there are creatures in this universe that have both eyes on one side, right here, and the nose here, and I don't know. Right. And so it was like, you know, the same with the sexes, and the same with the relations between fishes. And uh, so it was a totally, it's, it was a window to a totally different world with categories which have, which are all, almost the reverse or or totally different from what we take for granted. So there are no categories. In it. So it was really a window to, and, and I thought, oh my God, in between uh, the land, there is a whole universe in the sea, which has its own rules, its own, you know, its own categories, um, its own life. Um, and it really opened up my horizon. I didn't, I, yeah, I mean, uh, it was amazing. So this is how I felt with, um, with Naur's book, in the sense that he describes these lives lived uh, in the in-between, I mean, in, in the sea, which are lives, as someone mentioned in the audience, um, not only uh, away from the land, but uh, they are lives away from the category of time that we have really in, in mind. So it's as if it's a cyclical time. With, I mean, it, de it doesn't depend on night and day, on eight hours sleep. It depends on, you know, the, every time that you have to fish. And, and so it's a different circle of, a cycle of, life, of, of, of time. And then it's also a time that um, has an end. They know that it will end at with the end of the trip. So instead our time is an infinite time. We, we don't know. It's repetitive and, infi and infinite. There it's as if it's, you know, they get a break from human civilized infinite time and they go back to kind of pre-modern cyclical way of time, which is also finite. They know the end. It reminded me of the you know, of the religious view of the world that you know that the, the second resurrection will be there. The, the world ends sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it's a kind of pre-modern perception of time, right? So in that way, I found, it, I found it really, it reminded me of that. And also another thing that I always tell my students because I, I teach history of the Mediterranean some, sometimes, and um, uh, I, you know, the basis of my work is very close to ours, in the in the in the sense that um, you know we never think of history um, as something related um, to the sea, to the in between space. I mean, all histories, because of of the advent of the nation state, mostly, are very much um, related to the land right mm -hmm. think of all the histories that because we we learn history through as national history so it's all related to the land so 
what happens if you see history from the point of view of the sea and there a new world opens even on how you see the history on the land you know it changes the categories change in the same way that my universe changed when i opened that book the category change the categories change the time changes um uh, the framing of the periods changes uh, we place more emphasis on movement uh, on the uh, maritime empires for example on the regional formations like the like now does and you 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 actually you know, th- this is this is the way i see transnationalism mm-hmm. i think you it's your next question yes. yes yes i was wondering if you would talk a little bit more about what it meant when you said that Naor had written a new anthropology of the mediterranean or was working in ways that gestured towards a new anthropology of the mediterranean um, which yes you did associate with transnationalism at the panel so if you would talk a bit more about that yeah so um usually the anthropology on the mediterranean has been i mean it has been accused of being mediterraneanist in the sense that it describes the whole mediterranean as a, a unified region which has specific characteristics i don't know honor and shame or um, um, female roles for female i mean specific characteristics that uh, that anthropology studies study and this is uh, uh, one of the criti- critics to this way of doing of, of studying the mediterranean has been um, Herzfeld, who was the professor of Naur, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but Herzfeld is not that he criticized the way Mediterranean anthropology is done, he criticized Mediterranean studies in general, mm-hmm. saying that, okay, they are actually, you know, orientalizing the Mediterranean. It's Mediterraneanist in that sense, they create this idea. So Naur is the first sample I've seen. I mean, I'm not an anthropologist, so I don't know if there is somebody else in the, you know, who has done similar work, but it's the first work I read that doesn't treat, from an anthropological point of view, the Mediterranean in that way. It doesn't study the Mediterranean as a whole, but it, study, it, it does a little bit what historical studies of the Mediterranean have started doing um, since uh, um, maybe a, um, a decade um, in the sense that uh, again in history um, there was um, um, a development from the history of the Mediterranean the way Brodel did it to a history in the Mediterranean so that you, uh, in the way that Abulafia and many other historians do it nowadays um, so I think this is what the this shift is what now does for anthropology, for what I I know on anthropology, um, and what exactly I mean within the Mediterranean. I mean his main question is not to find what are the distinctive elements of a Mediterranean identity or society or whatever, but he tries to see how 
the perspective of the sea changes the way we see the populations that are around the sea and even in in between the various lands but even on the lands so because his because his um his narrative doesn't talk only about the boat it talks also about what is happening in the land but we see what is happening in the land from the perspective of the people who are in the sea this is what changes actually you see so he doesn't try to propose a new interpretation of what the Mediterranean is, Mediterranean entities, but he pro- he tries to examine what the sea region does to its people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's different. And so he creates a new uh, space uh, for for our imagination. You know. Uh, so we, he tells us we can do anthropology of the in-between. We can do, you know, it's not just uh, stable land-based societies. We can expand our view of what nations mean. And nations are always created in communication with the outside. So this is the, this is the kind of transnationalism that he does, that I like. And he doesn't tell us that, look, ah, wow, these people are cosmopolitan and they are above nations. No, they are very much implanted in the core of the nation, like the gifts that arrive to the... But the very core of the nation is transnational. This is the thing that he says. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. After you described your experience with the fish, I couldn't stop thinking about that idea. And it's now clearer to me what Nauer is doing when you talk about the way that nations are being reinscribed from a different point of view, which is that of the water. If we start thinking of human societies from the point of view of the fishes, yeah. of their world, it will be a totally different history, right? Yeah. This is the way I read Nauer's. This is what I think that he does. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you very much for speaking with me. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Naur ben Yehoyada's book, The Mediterranean Incarnate, Region Formation Between Sicily and Tunisia Since World War II. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Dennis Tennant's book, Plain Text, The Poetics of Computation. From Columbia University Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.